with Mike Aquilina, and you've written, I think, over 30 books. Right? I, I have written over 30 books, <laughs> right. yes. So you've been a frequent guest over the years at EWTN, and um, I haven't uh, read all your books, but I was just looking at the titles, some of them, and they really intrigued me. And one was about the, the mass, the mass of the early Christians. And I was wondering, you've done a lot of historical research Maybe you could tell us, what was it like? Um, where was it? Was it underground for most Christians or maybe the experience of it? Oh, sure. Well, it, it, um, it probably varied from time to time and place to place. In, in periods of intense persecution, uh, and there were many of those at the, uh, in the centuries of the early church, um, it would have been very much underground and sometimes literally underground. But at other times... Uh, there, there was a more relaxed attitude. Uh, the, the Roman authorities, for whatever reason, would, uh, would, would stop, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the oppression of Christians. Mm -hmm. uh, often this would happen because certain Christians were valuable to them. Or they mm -hmm. needed Christians in the military, or they needed Christians in other fields of endeavor. Um, so they'd let up on the persecution, and uh, Christians would enjoy a period of above-ground worship, so mm -hmm. to speak, uh, you know, where they could, they, could, they could relax a little bit. But, um, but it, was, it was never long before the next wave of persecution. And there was always a prejudice against Christianity for those first, say, 275 years. Mm -hmm. um, on the books, the laws were there, mm -hmm. and Christianity was a capital crime. Mm -hmm. It was like sedition. Mm -hmm. You know, you were giving your loyalty somewhere else. Um, so the Mass would have been that act by which they placed their loyalty in Jesus Christ. Now, if you were an ordinary Roman, and you were not a Christian, and you were not a Jew, you could give your prayers, you can offer sacrifices to as many gods as you wanted. It just didn't matter, and the Romans were okay with that. Right. But Christianity comes along, and Christianity says, no, there's there, there one is God. one God, right? <laughs> and you're only offering sacrifice in one place, and you're only celebrating your feasts with this one God. Right. And the Romans worried about what that would do to society and, and the cohesiveness of the people. They also worried about what it might do to family, mm -hmm. because these Christians had different ideas about what it means to have a family than the Romans did. Right. right, differed in a lot of important ways, and so this would cause strife in families, Roman right. families. So uh, from the Roman perspective, the Christians looked anti-family right. because they were coming out against these actions like divorce and, uh, and abortion and infanticide mm -hmm. and contraception, all of these things that Christianity has opposed from day one. Right. right? So the Mass was seen as this dangerous act where Christians bonded with one another and with their one God in this exclusive relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Excluding all the other gods. So the mass, um, the mass would have seen, been seen, would have seemed from outside like something dangerous, right. something bad, something wicked, and then a lot of things were projected on it. For the Christian, the experience of the mass might have been a lot like what we experience, say, at a weekday mass in a local parish, mm. where a few people gather out of great love, making mm. some sacrifice to be there. And the liturgy was probably somewhat like what we experience at these, these places today. There was mm. the liturgy of the Word, the readings, and the liturgy of the Eucharist right. um, afterwards, and then the reception of Holy Communion. Mm. Uh, you know, what's interesting to me, Father Mark, is that when the church decided to write a catechism, 
in the 90s, right? Mm -hmm. Just a few years ago. When they decided to write a catechism, they needed a description of the Mass. Mm -hmm. They didn't ask anybody to write a new description for the catechism. They used the one that Justin Martyr wrote in Rome in 150 A.D. Right. 150 A.D. So we're talking about very early in the church's history, very soon after our Lord's ascension. And the Mass he describes is the Mass I go to every day, and we all go to every Sunday. The Mass you said for me this morning. Right, right, right. And so, yeah, to me it is fascinating. I I was mentioned this in a little talk the other day about how we always, Christians are always getting in conflict with, with these I call them dictatorial dictator relational governments, and uh, and yeah, I never thought about yeah. If you're in a, a an area of paganism where they have multiple gods, we're saying the God of Israel is the one true God, and that was the big message of Exodus. But also, I wonder too if it's like like a control. It's like this: the state has to be number one, right? And it becomes like in our modern era, the past, <laughs> our experience of the 20th century is. You had atheistic governments that just want complete control and things. So, because you wonder, like Christians, we are preaching love of God, love of neighbor. What's where's the problem for the culture? <laughs> you know? Well, the problem is when some of those Christian women mm-hmm. think that they should have vocational freedom, right. and that they should be able to say no to marrying the guy down the street who wants to marry them, who's got a lot of money and a lot of power, because they have already pledged themselves to virginity. That creates problems in the social order. And what we know from the documentary record of both pagans and Christians in the first century, second century, third century, is that there was was a great number of people, both men and women, who chose to live a life of celibacy and virginity. This was shocking to the Romans because the Romans were looking at a low birth rate. And they were alarmed about that. So it seemed unpatriotic to them. It seemed un-Roman to them for these people to to sacrifice that part of their life. So there was a a lot of pushback from the families, the old families, Mm. the traditional families in Rome against Christianity. Christianity was seen as a threat to the social order, and it was. That's a great point. Yeah, because, you know, I think, yeah, that idea, you have a woman having this, a young woman having vocational freedom and to give ourselves to our Lord, it, it speaks of the essence of Christianity that, we don't give ourselves to some movement or to some institution. That's a personal relationship with the one true God. And I think in the canon, if you're counting Mary as well, I think there's eight women martyrs mentioned yeah. you know, of the early church. Sure. I mean, Mary's not a martyr, but she's seven women martyrs. And uh, a lot of them are like teenage girls, yeah. brutally murdered. And it it speaks of the seriousness of Christianity. I guess it gives us everything and it demands everything. You know, <laughs> if you look at Perpetua and Felicity, just to take two of those mentioned in the canon, yeah. right? Think of them. They were both young women right. and they're jailed with a whole bunch of their co-religionists right. and they're put down in this foul dungeon where they're supposed to live. Eventually, they're joined by Satyrus, their parish, parish priest, who emerges as the leader in the prison cell. Mm. It's Perpetua. Mm. Perpetua is the leader. She keeps a prison diary, which is which becomes an instant bestseller when mm. she dies. It's circulated far and wide all over the world. 
So you have this phenomenon of a woman emerging as a teacher, a leader, and a hero, mm. which is alien to that world. You do not have similar instances, even among the very rich, of women becoming teachers, leaders, and heroes in that world. Mm. This is, an, again, something that's a threat to the social order. It's a threat to the order of the family, that women have this kind of dignity. Now, today, you hear people say, the church is anti-woman. Right. And I, I say, look, we invented the idea of women's rights. Right. We invented the idea of the dignity of women, and the, the Romans and the Jews found us appalling for that. Right. So we were persecuted, I believe, largely because our high view of womanhood and the value of womanhood, uh, it, it, it was a threat to the Roman social order and the, and the traditional ideas about family, about sexuality, about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. We were cutting right through that. We were cutting it out at the root. And I forget the term, but the Roman term was paternus... Uh... Paterfamilias? Yes, paterfamilias. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, these were patriarchal families. Uh -huh. uh, it was a patriarchal society. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, other patriarchal societies, like the Israelite, for example, treated their women better right. and gave their women a better deal. And right. women, again, in, in the Old Testament, emerged as heroes, mm -hmm. as leaders, as teachers. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen so much in Rome. If right. you look at ancient literature... The ancient literature is mostly written by men, and it's about men. And what do the men do to become heroes in ancient literature? They eviscerate other men. Mm. They stick daggers into them and pull mm. out their guts. Mm. And this is described in rich detail, right? Mm. Christianity suddenly appears on the scene with these women heroes, these heroines, the saints. And, and uh, just to mention a few, the Blessed Virgin Mary, mm. right? Mary Magdalene, uh, the Saint Landina, of Lyon, mm. uh, you know, uh, and and uh, and Perpetua and Felicity, who are renowned for their courage, their more than manly courage, right. that they display uh, publicly, and they're they're looked to as guides, as models. That's not happening in paganism. Now, if you're a woman, and you're a pagan, you know, you're in that that world and that tradition. You're going to look at what your Christian friends have, and you're going to say, "Hey, I want a piece of that." Right. That right. certainly looks like a better deal to me. Right. So if you read the Fathers of the Church, it seems that a lot of the early Christians were women, and mm -hmm. you can't blame them for that. Mm -hmm. right? But, um, but you know what? The more women we got, the more attractive we became to pagan men, right? Mm -hmm. Because there was a shortage of pagan women because they were committing infanticide, mm -hmm. you know, as happens in many places on the earth today, right. where you eliminate female babies. All right. So there right. are fewer pagan women to marry, okay. but there are all these good-looking women going to mass right. over there. Right. That makes Christianity attractive to the men. Mm -hmm. and, and we shouldn't dismiss these, these, um, these, these qualities in the natural order, because Catholic theology says grace builds upon nature, perfects nature, mm -hmm. completes it. You know? and, mm -hmm. and that's what happened. You know? yeah. these, these, these natural realities made the church attractive to people. And right. then grace perfected those. Yeah. I, in my understanding is, like you mentioned, the infanticide, that the father of the family yeah, could decide to, to kill the child right, and leave it out on the hillside or whatever it is. You know, you know the, the phrase we have, raise up a child? Right. Do you know where that comes from? What happened was when a, when a woman was in the birthing chair in labor, uh -huh. the midwife would catch the baby mm -hmm. 
And the midwife would take the baby, cut the cord, place the baby on the floor, right. and call the father in. Wow. And the father, if he wanted the baby, mm -hmm. would raise it up, mm. lift up the baby from the floor. Mm. And that was his, his acknowledgement of paternity, and it was seen as his, his, um, his taking on of the obligations of fatherhood, mm -hmm. that he would, he would support the child through childhood, right? right. Uh, if the father didn't want the baby, for example, if the baby was female, the father probably would not want it because a female ch off child would be, would be a drain on the economy. You'd have to pay a dowry for that child, and the child would never earn enough money uh, to be profitable, so to speak, for right. the family. So the father would probably not keep a, a female child. The child would either be put out on the, on the dung, dung heaps or, um, or drowned in a bucket mm. of water right mm. there before wow. the mother. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's not a pretty world for females at any age. And we see Jesus in the gospel you know, overturning some social conventions towards women and, and raising their dignity. You know, the, Moses being allowed to write a bill of divorce, you know, was changed by Christ. And so, and I think, you know, just the tenderness he has with women, you know, meeting women at the well and yeah. other women that kind of breaking convention of talking to her and, and treating her with respect and dignity that even in the Jewish culture was raising it up, you know. It raised that, eyebrows, yeah. even for the apostles yeah, yeah. with the woman at the well. Right. It raised their eyebrows right. like, what is he doing here? Right. It seems right. crazy. Yeah. And so today we have our own, I don't want to say brutality towards women, but it just seems like as our culture gets more secular, it gets faster and harsher, and we, we lose the civilizing elements i think that women especially champion of peace and and nurturing a culture of relationship and things and i know i've interviewed people many occasions who talked about this that like women are losing in the sexual revolution today and as you say the church is labeled as anti-woman but these advances quote unquote are not helping women today, are they? <laughs> no. No, as a matter of fact, I think they're bringing us back mm -hmm. to a pre-Christian paganism. Right. You know, they're bringing us back to those times and a lot of the presuppositions that were there behind Roman law mm -hmm. and, uh, and, uh, and Roman culture. Mm -hmm. So we're finding that we have to fight the same battles. And frankly, that's why I've written so many books about the church fathers, because I think we have to learn to do what they did how to push back against such a culture, and how to create a new civilization, even if we have to do it underground, right. to do it gradually and, and to say, okay, I might not be able to see success in my lifetime, but I know that, that we will succeed in the long, in the long run. Right. How do I know that? Well, because our Lord made that promise. You know, He said yeah. the gates of hell would not prevail. We know that, that we're on the winning side. But also, we can look back on history and see what happened in the first, second, third, fourth century. We can see how the world was transformed by an illegal religion that was persecuted, mm. whose members faced a death threat every day. Right. You know, this is something that we can learn from as we go forward. Right now, we complain a lot about 
about persecution, but the persecutions we <laughs> suffer today, right. you know, they're like a hangnail <laughs> compared to what our, yeah, our yeah. earliest ancestors right. Right. Uh, in the faith, what, what they suffered. So I think that we have a lot to learn from them about endurance uh, yeah. because we may have to undergo the same kind of thing we don't know. I hope we don't because right. I don't think we're very strong. Right. Yeah, we seem kind of fat and happy these days in many ways. But. I am. <laughs> <laughs> and I I remember, you know, interviewing someone that it pointed out too, like how Christianity drove slavery off the European continent. Yeah. That was like Protestants and Catholics, but the slavery still existed, but not in European societies. And uh, that's that was a, a good yeah. point. Mm -hmm. Because slavery was a universal institution. Right. Everybody practiced slavery. Right. And then Paul writes this letter to Philemon, which mm. seems to call the whole thing into question in a very diplomatic way. Right. Right? And then in the fourth century, you have St. Gregory of Nyssa writing that slavery is something that should be a thing of the past. Right. Slavery is not compatible with Christianity. Yeah. And he says this in very frank terms. Now, not many people take him up on that because that's like questioning the principles of architecture or something, you know? It's, it's just, the basis of their economy. Right? Yeah. yeah, and so they could not imagine a world without slavery, but they knew that these circumstances had to be mitigated. So right. when you come to a new law code, a new legal code, the Code of Justinian, you find that a lot of the, um, the laws are dealing with slaves, okay? Mm -hmm. And, 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 uh, and encouraging the mild treatment of slaves and outlawing the abuse of slaves. Right. So these are steps forward, right. they're significant steps. They're right. not just baby steps. Right. And they're headed in the right direction. Eventually, right. it would be those principles that, um, that the, uh, the movements toward manumission drew from, you know, mm -hmm. in the later centuries, after, mm -hmm. the, after the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. And, uh, and the United States finally got around to in the 19th century. Right. But we had those principles from the beginning. It just took a while for them to work themselves out in society. Right. Right. And then like with the sexual revolution, I mean, the thing I see is like, you know, we're losing a marriage culture and and that a statistic I've, I've read, too, is that like more newly wedded wives ask for divorce, like in the first year or two than the men, you know, <laughs> but I think we can all look at it. Marriage serves everybody, but especially women, you know, in finding a stable relationship, you know, to have children, yes. to raise children. And, uh, you know, obviously both want this, but I think women in a particular way, you know, have that drive and, and gifted to care for kids. So it's like our culture is, is pointing us the opposite direction. And oftentimes radical feminism is fully behind that. And yet you just see more unhappiness and more misery. And the temptations that the devil offers to young married people um, are, are kind of what you'd expect. Mm -hmm. You know, you get, what, you get what you think you want in the short term, but you end up miserable in the long term because right. you have these, these drives to have yeah. a child and then later on to have grandchildren, right. you know, and you're denied those right. later on. And you look mm -hmm. back and you could see that you're denied them. Yeah. And it seems like a gross injustice. Right. And so you have uh, a level of bitterness and disappointment in people, I think, because, um, because, uh, because they, they did not get the thing they want. I, I once uh, re I read about a study that, um, that looked at the regrets of older people. And the most common regret was that they, they did not have one more child. 
no matter how many children they had, mm. that they did not have one more. You know, right. it's like, it's like, right. oh, if only I had one more. Right. I can remember my barber, who was a wonderful man, uh, didn't have a happy marriage. But he told me that his biggest regret in life was that he, and, he, and I should say, he had five children. Yeah. Uh, but he said his biggest regret in life was that he didn't have more children mm. because now that he was old, he just wanted to have more and more and more grandchildren. Right. So right. there's a certain longing for love that we get later on that cannot be fulfilled unless we're faithful at the beginning. And yeah. unless you're drawing from the wisdom of the past of, of, of people who've lived longer than 70 years, you yeah. don't know that. Yeah. You think, you know what I want? I want travel. Right. I want to see the world. Yeah. I want to be an executive in a corporation. Right. I want to do all these things. And this spouse I have is in my way. Right. Right. You know, this spouse I have is frustrating me. And, uh, and you can't see that far down the road because you don't have that sense of the tradition, of yeah. the wisdom of the elders who can tell you, you know what? You might want to stick it out. Right. <laughs> you know, say, they say to you, like, no one really says during their life, I wish I spent more time in the office. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but yet that's the value that our young people are constantly told and it's promoted. It's all about work, achievement, and all this. And, and the thing I realized, too, it's like, yeah, you, I have, you know, we can have like good friends, but that's different than family. At least my experience has been. It's like they're not really going to be with you through the absolute thick and thin some might but mostly that's kind of the the realm of the family you know mm -hmm. that they it's like long-term haul of because obviously there's human fallenness and yeah and love gets difficult commitment gets you know we kind of just fade out or drop out maybe with our friends but family there's a special bond there and that's that love is what we need to yeah. get and i even realized you know like when my my grandparents said three of them live into their 90s and it was an opportunity to, to, for me to love as a celibate priest, you know, to spend some time with them, to go down to visit sure. them and things like that, that not only did I receive, but I was giving, yeah. which was powerful. Yes. You, know? you have a place in that economy of, right. uh, of relationships. Yeah. And, and that's, a, that's a great thing. Um, yeah. So, uh, and that's Christianity's sweet spot. Yeah. And that the beautiful thing too is that it naturally draws people because I yeah like you're saying it seems like it's just overwhelming now to try to make the argument the apology for Christianity it's just like too much how do I what do I, how do I address I mean as a preacher I feel that all the time it's overwhelming to try to and then and then we're not we don't even have the same terms yes. it's like you know yeah. we're just completely speaking over each other, you know. And if you think of the way media work today, it's, it's, a, it's a frightening thing mm -hmm. because we want to see pretty faces. Yeah. We want to hear young voices. Mm -hmm. The people who have the wisdom are the people who are 70 and yeah. 80 years old, yeah. and they're not podcasting it. You right, know? Right. They're not out there right. on YouTube. They're not, they're not an influencer. And that's yeah. tragic right. because what, you, what happens is you have, you have, you have these, young, these young people who think that they've discovered everything, they, they're shouting their abortion, they're shouting their divorce, and they're talking about how happy it's made them for the last 45 minutes, yeah. right? You know, what we <laughs> right. need, I think, is, is, is a YouTube channel dedicated to people who've graduated from the School of Hard Knocks. Right, right. <laughs> you know, they're right. in their 70s, they're in their 80s, and they'll tell you straight out, yeah. here are the mistakes I've made. Right. Here's what I would do differently. Yeah. Because really, that's where we should be looking. These people, they can tell you what made them happy over the long haul. 
Right. They could tell tell you what made them unhappy over the long haul. Yeah. And they're the ones we should want to hear from, not from some Hollywood starlet or Hollywood star who's uh, who's who's really talking about the last 40, 45 minutes of pleasure yeah. that they've enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah, I think our culture, it's always got before us in the media, how you say like beautiful people, successful people, whatever talents. So we're just drawn to listen to them because that's kind of what we want we think we need. Uh-huh. But yeah, there's no, there's not a real wisdom there, and um, so yeah, I think I, that supports you on that YouTube channel. <laughs> what, let's talk a little bit about Our Lady. Uh, you've written about her and her, her influence on history. What did you find there? What I found there was something really beautiful that she is there in the family in every generation. You know, if you see, if you look through the scriptures, you see that. She always finds a way to be in the lives of her children. You know, she's mm -hmm. she's at the wedding feast and she sees that they've run out of the things for the party. Uh, she says to her son, they have no wine. Right. right. And we learn from that, you know, that she's infallible in her intercession. Mm -hmm. You know, that that she goes to her son and he he says, you know, woman, what's that to me to, to you and me? I mean, uh, my hour has not yet come. Mm -hmm. And what happens? He changes his hour for her sake. Mm -hmm. Now. He's God. Mm -hmm. He has all the foreknowledge necessary mm -hmm. to plan out a schedule. So if, if he changes his timetable, he's doing it for our sake, mm -hmm. to show us the power of her intercession. That's what that incident does. What we see if, as we read history is that she finds different ways to kind of just insinuate herself into the lives of, um, of, uh, of, of her people. And I, and I show the way this happened in the early church and, uh, and how it changed as, as the church went into the Dark Ages and then the Middle Ages, the plague years. It's interesting what happens at the plague years because from the time of the church fathers until then, we're talking about almost a millennium uh, or, or, yeah, a millennium, uh, what, what we see are these glorious pictures of Mary, right, mm -hmm. glorious. And then in the plague years, there emerges this form, the Pieta, of the mother holding the corpse of her beloved son, the grieving mother, the sorrowing mm. mother. And what that, what, ha, what that says to me is she found her way to get into the culture, mm -hmm. to be with the grieving people and to say, I'm there with you. I understand this. I know what you're going right. through, even if nobody else does. Right. And that happens at every phase in history. New forms of Marian devotion arise. Um, and they really show what... Um, what are the needs of that generation? And uh, what is the particular love of that generation? Think about Gothic architecture. We all love Gothic architecture. Mm -hmm. We were all watching in horror and shock when Notre Dame was burning. You know, we're watching it on live TV. We couldn't believe this was happening. Notre Dame is one of the great world masterpieces. Notre Dame is Our Lady. That's what it means. Yeah. This is this great church. It took centuries to build it so that the, the people who laid the first blocks didn't know what it would look like in the end yeah. but but people stuck with it over centuries because of their love for the madonna the invention of stained glass express expresses this right. this great collective love for our lady so yeah. she's always there as mother and we're always there as children kind yeah. of eagerly wanting to express that love for her yeah you know i, I remember years ago having a was on a you know, pilgrimage and we stopped in paris and we had this tour guide. You could tell he wasn't practicing his faith. He was South American. But I remember him saying, like, over the centuries, like you said, the building of it, 
And it just struck me like you had the best artisans that France could produce and throw at this project. You know, it's like it was a motivation of the culture, the value of the culture to do this. And so it was just so beautiful to think of the country, you know, not just a little corporation that builds a skyscraper, yeah. but a nation that sends forth its brightest and most talented people to do this. And, and yeah, you describe it well. I remember watching that on the news and it was like, it just felt like it was apocalyptic or something. And yeah. then, but to me, a miracle of that was that the French government, whatever, decided to, they wanted to rebuild it exactly as it was. <laughs> That's a miracle <laughs> because you know, it seems like the faith is yeah. so little practice now yes. and that you think they would want to bring in whatever secular values, you know. And, uh, you know, I can remember when I was very young, I read an essay by the American scholar Henry Adams who lived and at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, and it was titled The Virgin and the Dynamo. So it's looking at the Virgin, Mary, and the dynamo, the, the, the engine, mm -hmm. the combustion engine that was just invented then mm -hmm. and was driving all of these advances in technology. And he says the Virgin is the symbol of medieval culture and the, the, the driving force behind it. And look what came out of that. And he talks about art and poetry and architecture and all of this cultural flourishing that happened. And he looks at the dynamo, this impersonal force, this engine that just burns, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and plows over everything in its path. Mm -hmm. And he, he's wondering what kind of culture that's going to leave us with. Mm -hmm. Now, Henry Adams was an agnostic mm -hmm. who wrote hymns to the Virgin Mary because he saw that that way was better than what yeah. we have now. And he worried about where this was going. Yeah. So that ends up being uh, a driver in my book, really, because, um, because uh, all of these different cultural expressions of, of Marian devotion and Marian doctrine down through history um, are really what we live off. Right. And I worry about what people... Um, what people are feeding from, what's driving them since the Protestant Reformation and since this dominant force of a mother has been in their lives on the supernatural level. Yeah, and it, it reminds me too of what we were just talking about, how, you know, like the American Hollywood media is expert at dangling Hollywood beauty in front of us and things. And I always like to say, you know, the villains have the best lines, they right. dress the best, they're the most handsome. You know, it, yes. just, it, it dresses up vice with yes. beauty, it clothes it with beauty. But, um, you know, we see in Our Lady that, you know, it is, I think the Christian does, there is, you know, you hear like the Lord's apparition or something, you know, this beautiful woman, you know, this tender expression on her face comes to us. And that motivates us. There's something that's so important. It's not like beauty doesn't matter, but we, we find it here in Mary, and it's a great motivator. Something I, I've thought about more recently, too, is just that, as it's, others have pointed this out, but it, like women image the sacred. Because we're, like, we're battling about why can't women be priests, or what's the women's roles, or we've got to make... Yeah. To me, I always hear like women have to be like men, and yes. you know, it's like you're ignoring maybe some of the even even their their gifts of what they they bring and i think imaging the church's bride and the sacred and imaging holiness and the call to holiness the call to belong to christ you know is going to make a beautiful culture and women like you said yeah it could be an image of that the medieval culture and the culture today 
that it, it just motivates men to go get on the horse and fight that battle, take that hell, yes, and yes. get out of bed and do something. And I love the figures. You know, when you read history, you run into these characters like, like Catherine of Siena and mm -hmm. like Hildegard and like, uh, and, and like even closer to our own time, Mother Teresa of Calcutta and uh, Dorothy Day. Uh, now, it's something because when, when we saw Mother Teresa on television in those, those last decades of her life, she was this gnarled, hunched woman, mm. and yet I would say that she was an image of beauty right. for everyone who saw her. Right. And everyone looked right. to her smile and gravitated toward it. Right. She didn't fulfill any of the Hollywood ideas of beauty, and mm. yet she may have been the most beautiful human being alive at that time. Mm. She was telegenic beyond any of the Hollywood starlets. Mm -hmm. It was a remarkable phenomenon, and yeah. I don't think anybody yeah. could deny that. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and, and we could say that. Just hearing her talk. I, I remember I was a postulant and when she did the national prayer breakfast yes. in D.C., I think the Clintons were there. You know, she talks yeah. about, you know, if you don't want the child, give me the child. Yeah. And she actually actually did start a home with Hillary Clinton. I heard, I just learned this a few years ago. I don't know if you've ever heard about that, but mm -hmm. they actually did. Hillary came to her and like wanted to do something and they did. They had some kind of, I think it doesn't exist now, but they did start something. But Anyway, yeah, I just remember, you know, she's saying very simple truths, but it, it's just so moving and stirring. You know, it wasn't like this fiery, skyrocketing or rhetoric, you know. Yeah. She was just saying, yeah, we picked up so many people from the gutters and we helped them. And it's like there's something, the beauty of that or whatever, the, the truth of that just strikes everybody. And I think that's the way it was in the early church. When people witnessed the martyrdom of Blandina, Mm -hmm. I think they were changed by the beauty of such a horrendous, ugly situation. Right. The ugliest situation is to watch, watch someone else dying. Yeah. And yet yeah. it was the transforming moment for people who were witnesses to it. Yeah. And they had to marvel at her courage and, and marvel that she had something that she was willing to die for. Because mm -hmm. the people who were there, the, 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 the mob that brought on this death, they didn't have anything they were living for except the next round of entertainment, yeah. this violent entertainment. So right. that's, that was their life, and they saw that she was far richer than they were. You know, to me it's interesting why there's so many apparitions of Our Lady. Certainly Jesus appears to people, but it's like it's not, we don't have that phenomena as much in the Catholic Church, you know. Yeah. The, what is that about? <laughs> That's a good question, and I've never thought about that yeah, before. Yeah. But it was that it was that way even in the early church. You know, we mm -hmm. have Marian apparitions reported from the first century. Yeah. The first one was in the Book of Revelation, chapter mm -hmm. eleven and twelve, chapters eleven and twelve. You know, the woman clothed with the sun. Now, mm -hmm. presumably, this is something that John saw. It was right. an apparition, right. and it was someone he knew. It right. was the Blessed Virgin who had lived with him. Right. Mm -hmm. If you go later in that century, you have the. Um, the account of uh, Thomas, the apostle, having an apparition of the Blessed mm -hmm. Virgin because he was the one apostle who could not be there at right. her bedside right. at her death or at her passing. Yeah. And um, St. James. Right. And so, yeah, St. Yeah. James. Yeah. And then um, and then later on, as you get into, especially as you get into the fourth century, there are, there are still more Marian apparitions reported. Gregory the Great writes about one in, uh, in his dialogues. Yeah. So, so, it's it's something that's common even then, and um, 
And you you wonder what our Lord is thinking there. Uh, yeah, why doesn't He appear to people? It's kind of like, like the way the gospel begins, huh? <laughs> because uh, it, it's it's um it's the way Saint Luke's gospel begins, uh, and it's it's a powerful thing that we begin we begin with her because that's where He Himself began. Yeah, you know, yeah. and uh, and she was the first to manifest Him to first to to Elizabeth. Right. And then to the Magi, to the Gentiles, right. uh, and then to the greater world. You know, when she she fled to Egypt, she was the first to manifest her son, to bear him, and right. show him to the neighbors right. in all of these different places. Yeah, the visitation. Yes. And yeah, to make that long journey, like ninety miles or something. I even looked on Google Maps one time. It's like a three thousand foot change in elevation. If she went down the Jordan River to the Dead Sea and then up to Bethlehem, it's like you know, it's not a Hop, skip, and a jump. You know? no. <laughs> I mean, to me, it shows like some zeal. You know, she's going over the hill country of Judah, Judah, and uh, and just urgency and determination. And as Pope Francis pointed out, like her fiat or let it be done to me according to your word is 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 also like a, a grasping hold of it. Mm -hmm. It's not just, of course, it's not passive, but yeah. she's seizing hold of it. Yes. And that appeals to feminism today, I think. But well, it should. Yeah. It should. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I I, uh, I am a great admirer of the the women of the early church. I wrote a book called "The Witness of Early Christian Women" mm -hmm. because I think it was the countercultural witness. It was the the front line of the revolution that right. that changed the world. Right. Right. And she's the model of holiness. She's the first. Jesus is a divine person. She's a human person, and she's. A model of discipleship, you know, that we that we're in that stance of receiving grace, that we're in absolute need of grace, yes. that we're all called to be bride, yeah. you know, to be joined to Christ, sure. and uh, so she models that for us. And so, got to get that word out there. Yes. <laughs> Closing thoughts. So you, let me just close on that thought. You you see the fathers as a model for how to to evangelize in these pagan cultures, secular cultures. So can you talk a little bit more about that model they give us? Or? Well, what we know from that time is that they did not have access to media. So you are on television right, every day. Right, <laughs> you know, right. your mass was on television. Yeah, yeah. It was broadcast all around right. the world. That's mm -hmm. great. Mm -hmm. They did not have opportunities like that. Yeah. There were no electronic media. There was no printing press. Right. You couldn't even do a pamphlet to hand out mm -hmm. in public. And besides that, it was illegal to, to, to proclaim anything about Christ in public because being Christian was against the law. It was a capital crime. You could be executed for mm -hmm. it. Um, so the only means they had for evangelization was friendship. Mm. Making friends with the people next door. Mm. Uh, making friends with the people in the next market stall. Right. And, get, and getting into their lives and, and taking that risk that you always have whenever you enter into a relationship with somebody else. Then the risk was severe because... You, you're establishing a bond of trust. Yeah. If they should get angry with you, they could denounce you as a Christian and you could be executed the next day. So there was a risk to it, but they took that risk and they befriended the world and the church grew through all those centuries, 275 years, the church grew at a steady rate of 40% per decade worldwide. Wow. 40% per decade worldwide. Mm. I have never lived in a parish that's grown at 20% or 10% per decade, right. never mind 40%. Right. Right. 
What do they have to teach us? They have everything to teach us and we have everything to learn from them. Yeah. And that is like a first step of evangelization, just making friends with the person. And It's the first step and it's the last step. Yeah. It's the most important thing because mm -hmm. it's not enough to, to give them books. It's not enough to give them pamphlets. It's not enough to send them a link to a podcast. Mm -hmm. They have to see it that it's real. Yeah. John Chrysostom has this yeah. funny sermon right. where he, he's, he's making fun of the people there. You know, he said, well, you're going to go to your pagan friend and you're going to say, here's how, how Jesus tells us to live. The pagan looks at him and says, you don't live that way. And he said, oh, I know I don't. But you know what? If you go 100 miles in that direction, there's a monastery. And there, if you go there, you'll see monks who live that way. And the pagan's going to say, I don't want to travel to see right, some monk. Right, right. I want to see you live what yeah, you're talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, that friendship is what manifests a life. Mm -hmm. That's attractive. And mm -hmm. that's what changed the world. Yeah. I remember on Life on the Rock, it's like, oh my gosh, 15 years ago, we interviewed this woman that was teaching English as a second language in China. So it wasn't even explicitly evangelizing. She would teach these kids in class, and they were so drawn to her, they would come to her apartment and just want to be with her, to visit with her. And then she catechized them there. Wow. And she had like, 13 converts, I think. Wow. And I remember sitting there interviewing her. I said, I can't really think of any convert I've had. <laughs> and you're in red China doing this. Yeah. It's like, you know, just last thought, something I think about sometimes, you know, during COVID here, EWTN drew a you know, significant increase in viewers. You know, people were cut off from their parish mass and stuff, so they started watching. But, you know, the EWTN didn't start televising the mass, I don't think, till like 92 or something. Mother Angelica just came out and talked to people. It was almost like an evangelization kind of bringing them to the Eucharist. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? And, uh, so there, there was a bond that was like friendship. Right. Because they, they, were, they, they were listening to her and they felt that she understood them. Right. I can't tell you how often this happens to me yeah. because I'm on EWTN. Right. I'm in Jerusalem. Somebody walks up to me and recognizes me mm -hmm. and starts talking to me as if we're the oldest friends. Right. right. And and I'll, I'll say, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> and then it'll come too. It was yeah, like, yeah. A, I've had this experience over and over again in, in distant places. Yeah. But people will recognize you and it's like you are their friends. Right. You know, right. It's, it's, it's something. Yeah. Well, last story with that. One of my favorite stories like that for me is I was in Australia, World Youth Day. Yeah. And it was like the Saturday evening vigil. I'm walking across this, all these fields of pilgrims. And this African priest, like from Cameroon or something, calls out to me, Father Mark, we watch you on Life on the Rock. You know, he's in Africa. <laughs> yeah. And I yeah. think, what do we have to say to the people of Africa? But you isn't know, that Catholicism? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And right. it was that way for the first Christians too. Yeah. 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 All right. Thank you, Mike, for speaking. It's been great. Thanks for having me, Father Mark.